0: Hi again, everybody. I'm Dan Hort, and thanks for downloading the Bengals Booth podcast. The... I want to be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens, the room where it happens. Edition is we take you inside the Bengals War Room during the NFL Draft with Greg Seaman, who is a Bengals scout for more than a decade. He shares some great stories about Cincinnati selecting Andrew Whitworth and Giovanni Bernard, and also discusses why things didn't work out in 2015 when the team's first two picks were Cedric Obwehi and Jake Fisher. Then I'll be joined by Tony Pauline, the senior draft analyst for ProFootballNetwork.com, who makes the case for why the Bengals should not draft Iowa center Tyler Linderbaum in round one. The Bengals Booth podcast is presented by Ultimate Bengals. Download Ultimate Bengals ahead of the 2022 season. It's free-to-play next-level fantasy football with fantastic Bengals prizes. Get it now on the App Store and Google Play. And here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered right to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. It's the greatest thing since Weddle. I'm guessing that many of you are playing the game Wardle, where you have to figure out a five-letter word in six tries. At the risk of bragging, as of this morning, I'm 61 for 61. Because of the popularity of Wardle, a bunch of similar games have popped up, including an NFL version called Weddle, named for former Pro Bowl safety Eric Weddle. In Weddle, you have eight tries to figure out the identity of an NFL player, with clues involving their team, division, position, height, age, and jersey number. If you're interested, just search for Weddle Game and it'll pop right up. I'm three for three so far. Now, time to take you inside the Bengals draft room with former scout Greg Seaman, who is in the room where it happens for 13 drafts from 2003 to 2015. Greg, we got to know each other when you were the offensive coordinator at UC under Rick Minter. I've never asked you this question. How did you wind up in the Bengals personnel department? Uh, after UC,
1: I was the offensive coordinator at Miami, of Ohio. but in that in that six year period there, um, I spent a lot of time with the Bengals with Bruce Coslett and, and Ken Anderson who, who were coaching, was coaching the quarterbacks. And uh, I wanted to learn in detail, uh the west coast system that sam weish had implemented and we were using some of that uh the last couple years i was at uc and then we used it almost exclusively when i went to miami so i developed a relationship with those folks um in 2002 bruce coslet became the offensive coordinator of the dallas cowboys and offered me a a job there coaching the tight ends. And I I went down there, uh, not knowing that it was the last year of the head coach's contract, and they were about to hire Bill Parcell. So it was a short uh, tenure in Dallas. Uh, But I, uh, when that was over, I really wanted to be back in the Cincinnati area. I hadn't, it's home for me, Southeast Indiana. And I had, there were no It was a tough year looking for a coaching job. And Bruce did me a real favor. He called uh, Mike Brown and Marvin Lewis, who had just been hired, and uh, uh, gave me a a good recommendation. I had a year left on a Dallas contract. So I interviewed, uh, Mike called me, actually, and uh, invited me to come to Paul Brown Stadium. I interviewed with him and with Marvin. And at that point, uh, the Bengals had never had an advanced scout. Uh, someone that would study thoroughly an upcoming opponent and then on Mondays uh, sit down with the offensive staff, the defensive staff, and then with Darren Simmons, a special teams coordinator and go over what you knew about them, what you had learned from the previous week. So I did that in 2003 and really enjoyed it. It kept me connected with coaches and and it was just, it was a fun job. Uh, and after that, uh, they, they decided to, uh, expand the, uh, the player personnel department by, uh, 33% because there was Lippy Jim Lippincott and there was Duke. And, and then there was myself. And then, uh, we added another young guy uh, a year or so later. So it really kind of rounded things out for me because I still did a lot of the advanced scouting. Uh, I was doing college scouting and we were doing pro scouting and uh, you were intimately involved in what was going on with the team. And then also, of course, with the draft. And that just kind of uh, blossomed It uh, became something I really enjoyed. And uh, it, uh, I have three amazing daughters, and they were all in school, great elementary school, going into junior high. They had after-school activities. And it afforded me the opportunity to be involved with a lot of the things that I probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to do were I uh, – you know, just just coaching so uh
0: it was a, a winding road but it started with a relationship with kim and with bruce so were you in the draft room in 2003 marvin's first draft when they selected carson palmer number one overall i was and
1: uh i wasn't a part of the um uh, all the work that had been done but the that decision was an easy one and i uh and, and a wonderful approach, I thought, by Marvin, uh, in that uh, this guy is going to be a great quarterback, and we are, uh, we are a team in transition. You know, we're, we're not as good as we'd like to be yet. We're not going to subject this guy to going out and getting sacked 50 or 60 times in the year. Uh, we had John Kitna, who was a, a good quarterback and a, a really good professional. And I, I think to this day, if, if people ask Carson, uh, he has always said uh, that worked out really well for him. He learned so much that year and just watching John's approach and how John handled situations during the ball game, communication with the coaches. Uh, so, yeah, that was uh, that was a no doubter and uh, ended up being a very good pick.
0: So the following year, 2004, was that the first time that you were really yeah. involved with the draft process? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. What do you remember about that first draft, where you're in the room and you're you're voicing your opinion and uh, you know really invested in every selection?
1: You are, um, as a guy early in your that part of your career, you're reluctant to say much of anything. <laughs> there's a there's a certain um, paranoia, uh, a healthy one, when it comes to the the draft room on draft day. You you don't want to screw anything up. And you you don't want to throw out the window all the preparation that has been done prior to that. So uh, early in your career, you are to speak when called upon, and uh, otherwise, uh, what's the old Mark Twain saying? Uh, it, it's better to be silent and thought a fool than to open your mouth and confirm it. Uh, so uh, I was very happy to sit there and uh, snack and uh, watch the goings on and try to learn. How this all works.
0: Our guest is Greg Seaman, a former Bengals scout who was in the Bengals draft room for 13 years. What's Mike Brown like during the draft?
1: Mike is uh, calm, thoughtful. He is uh, he's really good at asking questions, uh, posing the uh, okay if it comes to this. Do you want player A or player B with this pick and why? He is um, steady, I think. Mike, he grew up with the old Cleveland Browns as a kid. I mean, he hung out with Dante Lavelli and and the guys on the team. And uh, so he's been around it literally his entire life. And so there's not a lot that would surprise him. And uh, when his father was the... uh, was the head coach of the, of the Bengals and the general manager. Mike and his brother Pete did all of the scouting. They, uh, the, the coaches were involved after the season, but the preparation leading up to that was Mike and Pete. So uh, there's not a, in that particular room uh, amongst the personnel guys, there's not a job that he hadn't already done. And, and so there's a, a wealth of experience and knowledge there.
0: I didn't get to know his brother Pete very well, but he was known for his draft acumen. How big was his role during those years?
1: I I think that uh, his voice was the number one voice that Mike would listen to if there was uncertainty. I I think in those years, it would have been uh, Marvin and Pete and then Duke. Uh, who would have had the most effect on what we were about to do Uh, yeah Pete lived it he was just remarkable um, the amount of time that he spent on the guys and and we had our draft board you know set up by rounds but in this little ante room back behind the draft board in this little hallway uh, Pete had a small board set up and he would list uh, in order, as he saw them, every draft eligible player in the country. He would have watched all of them. So he had them labeled one through 400 or whatever there was uh, as his own uh, uh, kind of guide. If, if we were talking about someone around and he was uncertain, he would walk around and look at his board and say, See, that guy's, uh, I have him much lower. We need to investigate this and talk more about uh, why we see this player in this inflated position in the board.
0: Do they religiously stick to the board? I mean, you've obviously put a ton of work into it leading up to the draft. When you get to those three days, do you say, all right, we have to trust the work we put in and stick to that order.
1: You do for the most part. Yes, you do. Um, and let's say that you are, uh, picking, uh, 16th middle of the, and it's the first round. Um, you establish, through your meetings, 16 players that you are happy to take. Within those 16 players, and in a lot of it, you know, we're talking first round, uh, people may not realize that there has never been a draft where there were 32 first round pick guys guys that were worthy of if you if you say, you know, you have to define it. So in our definition, if you're taking a guy in the first round, you're saying that he is quite possibly an immediate starter, and that you expect him to be an impactful player. Uh, so at a skilled position, someone that's going to produce touchdowns or interceptions or run for a lot of yards, or a lineman that's going to get a defensive lineman that's going to produce sacks or an offensive lineman who's going to play for a long time at a high level. So to set the board, you have to define what each round is and then say, okay, does this player fit the, the description we're giving it? So there's no draft where there are 32 guys that fit that. So some drafts go 20 deep or 18 deep. So if you're sitting there in the middle of the first round and you've got 16 guys, it, it may be there are 12 of them who are like, God, these guys are really good. And these next four, yeah, they're, they're first round guys, but they're not quite the same first round guy as these other 12. So at that point, then, if one of those 12 seems to be going to be available a spot or two ahead of where you're going to go, then that's when you might talk about moving up a couple of spots, uh, not in violation of your board, but maybe better use of the board, um, you have to have a guide and you have to uh, believe that the work and all the discussions you've done with coaches and the personnel guys and the arguments and where you ended up is, uh, is a good plan.
0: And yes, for the most part you need to stay true to your board. Now I imagine people listening to this heard you say that in no draft, Are there 32 guys worthy of a first round grade? And they're thinking, well, the Bengals take 30 are going 31st this year. Does that mean they're not going to get a first round guy? I think what a lot of people don't recognize is that the Bengals are probably going to get a guy at number 31. That's about 14th on their board, or that that's just kind of a random number, but somebody that is very uh, much higher than the 31st best player. Right. In their mind. No, that's right. And you
1: when you're picking 31st uh, you it means that you have an awfully good football team and uh, so a player a specific player who would fit uh, a spot on your team that that uh, he may be more valuable to you than he is to some other players because it's a, a, sp- a very specific skill set that you're looking for um, But you'll also see oftentimes, uh, you know, the the Patriots for years were picking down near the bottom. And what they realized early on was that the second round starts around pick 20, 25, somewhere in there. And so if someone below you uh, has eyes for this person in the, the first round at 31, well, let's trade down and get a couple more picks. We'll take an extra second rounder because we think that that's one more guy in this category of players that are kind of the same guys. They're good players. They're going to play a lot in the NFL, but if you have defined the first round as this guy, we want people that are going to be pro bowlers. uh, That doesn't mean they're bad players. There aren't that many pro bowlers around. Um, So uh, that's an area where you will see teams trade down a little bit and teams that are a little uh, needy jumping up to take someone at 31 and you think, Now, you also have to weigh in uh, the fact that that 31st and 32nd pick have a five-year contract. And uh, that can be really meaningful as you look forward at your cap numbers. Um, Maybe it's an offensive lineman or a defensive lineman who you want to have for a long time. It's really nice to have that fifth year built into that first year, uh, that first-round contract. So that's another element
0: into the decisions there. We're getting a peek into the war room from former Bengal scout Greg Seaman. How big of a concern is leaking information in this process?
1: I think it's a pretty big concern. I, uh, some places, you know, there are only three people that have access to the draft board and the room is double locked and there are cameras and, and laser sensors. Um, information, uh, as, as Pete Brown used to say, once information is out, it's out at all levels. Uh, now, the the uh, there are some that like to play the information game, and they will leak to a writer or an agent that, you know, we're really leaning this way, or we think this guy's great, and they want that information out there. But, uh, but certainly, uh, you don't want to broadcast um, what your intentions are. It changes the value of picks. It changes the values placed on certain players uh, and what teams are willing to uh if they want to jump ahead of you, or if you're trying to, uh, if they know you want a certain guy and you call them on draft day about moving up uh, the price for that spot may have gone up if they believe that you are desperate to go get that player. So, so yes, that information needs to stay in house.
0: How much did things change as Duke Tobin took on a more prominent role in running the draft?
1: I think that uh, we streamlined our work Uh, Everybody, the traditional approach to it is that in the spring, uh, after the draft, scouts go out to all the colleges in their region, their area, and uh, get a, a first thought on next year's draft eligible players at those universities. And you're building networks, talking to coaches, that kind of thing. And then in the fall, you're with your team for a little while in training camp. And then, as the colleges start to practice and play, uh, you're just gone uh, from maybe the third week of August until the end of the college season. Uh, you're on those campuses and and doing all of that. We did have a smaller uh, number of scouts, um, but as 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 Duke pointed out. Uh, let's go look at the guys that are going to play in the NFL. There's a, there's some busy work that goes on with some of the teams that have really big scouting staffs. They'll they'll go into a college and, and grade every senior, for example, in the program. So maybe there are 18 seniors. Well, the, the place may have three prospects. And our approach was go in and find out who are the prospects and let's pay attention to those guys and let's get on to the next place. So, uh, gosh, probably seven or eight years ago, Duke came up with the idea that the way that the the film is distributed now, we have all the video immediately from the colleges. And um, it can be really inefficient if you're at a, if you're at a big school as a scout um, and you go there on a a Wednesday to watch practice and watch tape, there may be a dozen other scouts there and, sitting in a darkened room for the big part of the day, trying to watch the videotape with 11 other people is a lot like having 12 people fighting over the remote to watch television. (laughs) You you can't, in a way, run that back. And then one guy's going slowly, run that back, run it. And then 10 other guys, we've already seen this. Can we go into something else? So uh, uh, Duke came to me with the idea and I agreed with it wholeheartedly. He said, let's do this. Let's go out in the fall. Uh, for a couple months, and let's not worry about looking at the videotape. Uh, you might hit two schools in a day. You know, if I had uh, uh, the Atlantic States, for example, so I could hit Duke, North Carolina, and North Carolina State in two days. And instead of sitting in that room with all the other scouts, go around and talk to people. So I would spend time in the training room. I'd go see the academic counselor. Use you, you know, any coaches you could grab, um, and let's let's build that kind of information in person, and then let's come back home. And we can sit, I can sit for a day in my office and watch all the North Carolina film I want to watch uninterrupted. And I thought that was a brilliant idea. It really streamlined uh, uh, our time. And it, it made, uh, I got to see a lot more video, I got to spend a lot more time on it. And I got to talk to more people on campus. So uh, I don't know that many teams do it that way even yet. Uh, but I, I thought that. Uh, you know, we had a run of some really good drafts when we were uh, in the kind of the glory years of Marvin's uh, tenure there. Um, and uh, I thought that that approach was a big part of that. I thought we were more well-informed maybe than some of the other teams.
0: When you're on the road talking to trainers, academic advisors, mm-hmm. assistant coaches, et cetera, how honest are they?
1: Not very. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, and you And you know that going in. Um Part of the, you know, for the 13 years that I was there, I had the same area. So I was on the East Coast. And so a part of that is developing relationships. You don't really get to talk to coaches a lot during their season when you're on the campus. Uh, They'll have someone assigned uh, when the scouts are there. We're usually sitting in their team room and somebody will come in and tell you about all the guys. And and they're going to lie up and down the board uh, to, to defend the players that they have um, strength coaches, uh, by their nature are pretty doggone honest. You know, if you ask the right, they'll, they'll give you the spiel. Here are the numbers. This guy benches this, this guy runs that and all that, but if you can get them alone and you say to them, for example, when you have partner workouts, do you put young guys with him? And if he says, no, never, never. And it's because he's not a hard worker. Uh, or you may ask, uh, have you ever thrown this guy out of the weight room? Yeah, two or three <laughs> times because, you know, the guy just won't work. Uh, so you, you occasionally find that. Now, you also find out that once the college season is over and the draft eligible players aren't going to be playing for them anymore. You, so that we're talking now and after the combine, there's a period of time, a month or so, where you can go back out and they're having pro days and that kind of thing. They're much more honest than <laughs> the guy doesn't play there anymore. You know, you know, oh, you know. But we couldn't wait to get him out of here. Or uh, occasionally, you know, you'll get uh, uh, they'll they'll tell you things. You know what? When I talked to you in September, I didn't say much about this guy. I want to tell you something. By the end of the year, he was a real leader for us. I mean, this kid just grew as a person, and I would change my recommendation to the positive uh now and I want to make sure you hear that because I know I didn't leave a very good impression of him early on so it works both ways but they are more forthcoming once they uh, once they don't uh, uh have to have the kid in the program and maybe that leaks there was one strength coach at a university I will not mention that I thought was just over the top and what he did on every kid's locker he had a a Velcro strip next to their nameplate at the top of their locker. And he had these little message boards made up and it said things like hard worker, leader, non-compliant, lazy, you know, uh, inconsistent. And on a weekly basis, he would go in and just change those. And so you could walk through the locker room, (laughs) you see this gets locker and it says lazy. (laughs) Okay. That's pretty direct. I, I think the head coach after a year made him stop doing that because he saw all the scouts walking down the hall, the aisle <laughs> of the locker, making notes on every player. Uh, but, uh, he felt that that was motivation. And I think that, uh, uh while it was well-intentioned, his, his approach was probably, uh, less than desirable.
0: Was there a point where the Bengals decided to prioritize character concerns more?
1: I think that, um, you know, if you if you uh, if you have a restaurant, for example, uh, people that uh, have a complaint are much more likely to to write something on the internet about that. And if a player has an issue and it's a public issue, it gets a great deal of attention. And not that it shouldn't, but it overshadows a whole bunch of other guys on the football team. So uh, yes, we had a run where uh, we had a handful of players, uh, they got in trouble. And uh, that reflected badly on everyone in the organization. Uh, So yes, then you you have to look then at at what you're, how you're evaluating them. I think that there is a, uh, there's a, there's a chemistry that, that exists in a locker room. Uh, We were blessed, uh, to have Andrew Whitworth and Domitop Pecco, for example, uh, in our locker room all those years. Uh, if a rookie came onto the team, the odds were pretty quickly he was going to end up at their homes uh, holding a couple of their kids on their lap and waiting for dinner and just getting a sense of, you know, this is how we do it. Uh, but even still, then, you have a couple of guys that that uh, don't behave the way you want them to behave, and, and you have a uh, – you have to decide what your tolerance level is for that. And at a certain point you say, you know, this has now become a distraction. It's beyond just something that you have to manage. It's a, it's becoming a negative for our football team. And yes, then you have to go, uh, you have to say, we're, we're just not going to take, uh, too many chances on guys that we know could have an issue. And sometimes you bring a guy in that has an issue that never showed itself before, Uh, so you can't, uh, you can't always predict it. The The quality of your locker room, though, the, the, the leaders in the locker room uh, can handle minor issues. If it becomes too big, then, yeah, the player has to go and, and you have to think in a different direction.
0: Andrew Whitworth and Domitav Pecco came in the same draft, 2006. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Joseph, same year. So that was obviously an extremely successful year in the draft for the Bengals. Do you have a favorite draft or a favorite draft pick from the 13 years you spent with the team? I think wit uh,
1: he was, he was not in my area. He was in the South, but I got to know him. And when we had our, uh, at the con at the Indianapolis combine uh, you get a, you can select a group of players to interview. You get 15 minutes with each of, each of them. Each team has a, a room, a hotel room basically, and the players come by. And, and so wit came in and, you in that 15 minutes, you're trying to get to know them, and, and uh, you you try to have a oh a set of questions that might help them reveal something about themselves. And a lot of times, you put videotape on of them playing, and you ask them to explain what what we're seeing. We simply asked Whit to look at a play, I think, and about 10 minutes later, after he'd finished discussing every aspect of his footwork, his hand placement, where the safety was, how he knew this guy was going to go inside because of the placement of the free safety and the linebacker's depth. And uh, that was at that moment, when he left the room that Marvin Lewis turned to Paul Alexander, our line coach and famously said, if we draft this guy, I don't need you. Uh, He he can coach them himself. Um, so and, and you just knew his maturity and, uh, and part of it was his size. I mean, there's a six, seven, 330 pound guy that was really smart and a good human being. Uh, you just thought that, you know, this this guy is going to be so good for so long. The other one for me, it was in my area. Uh, Giovanni Bernard was, um, you know, this kind of the scat back and pump returner at North Carolina uh, but I did have good contacts there, the, the video guy and one of the trainers. And, and they went out of their way to say, I got to understand, Geo is a special human. You want him on your team. He's not only a good player, he's just really, really a good person. And uh, so uh, Hugh Jackson at that point was coaching our running backs. And I called Hugh and said, we're having a pro day down here at University of North Carolina, and I'm I'm going to be pushing for Giovanni Bernard. I need an ally in the draft meetings leading up to this. Come down, work him out, see what you think. So uh, Hugh came down for our pro day there at, uh, at UNC and uh, worked him out. Then I think maybe he took him to lunch, spent time with him, and then he called me later and he said, thank you so much. He said, this guy fits in perfectly with what we want to do. And Gio became uh, one of the really good third down backs, uh, even at his size, just a tremendous pass protector was so important uh, and could catch the ball out of the backfield and could run the ball, you know, better than probably given credit for and more physical runner uh, than people uh, thought. But um, those two guys really stand out just because of all that they have contributed. Sometimes, you you know, you miss on a guy and you feel bad about that. And when you see guys that are, uh, that you thought, I think this is what this person's going to be. And then they become that for a long period of time. And then it makes you feel good about the work that you did and, and that you got the, you got that one, right.
0: The Bengals selected Giovanni Bernard with a 37th pick in the 2013 draft. I have it in my notes that he was 11th on the Bengals draft board. That year, which, if true, indicates how highly the organization thought of him, was that pretty nerve wracking then, waiting for that thirty seventh pick to see if he would still be there.
1: We loved him, and uh, and and Hugh and I won our our battle in the uh, in the in the draft meetings. And this guy's going to really help us. Uh, but uh, it brings up another point, as as Duke uh, would always point out. You know, there are two grades. The most important grade is the grade that you as an organization put on a player relative to your football team. And then there's the grade of how the league is going to see this player. And we were well aware that the the league would not see Giovanni Bernard as a first round running back. So there was no way he was going to go in those first 32 picks. Uh, But for us, we saw a guy who had first round qualities and that we thought that he would have fill a real role on our team would catch a lot of passes out of the backfield. And in our offense, that was a real possibility. The ball was going to be thrown to a back and that he would play for a long time. So he would be an impact player. So, um, once you got into the second round, yeah, 33, 34, 35, then you're starting to squirm a little bit, but that when you mentioned information earlier, see, that would be a pivotal bit of information. Uh, it would have been noticed by other teams that the Bengals running back coach was present at the North Carolina Pro Day, because one of the things you do as a scout is on your whether it's on your phone or a tablet or a piece of paper in your pocket, you're making note. Well, uh, Tomlin was there, and so and so, and the general manager was there too. So when you come back in your draft meetings uh, after the Pro Days. You're talking about well, where do you think everybody else sees him? Well, the Steelers had seven guys there, so I think they like the guy, you know. Um, uh, so we were, yeah. You would have been a little concerned
0: that people would have recognized that that Geo was uh, uh, important to us. Our guest is former Bengals scout and former NFL assistant coach Greg Seaman. One of the Bengals' all-time best draft picks was Geno Atkins, fourth yeah. round in 2010. What stands out about that selection?
1: Bill Tobin. Uh, Bill was helping us uh, and was doing scouting then. Duke's father, a longtime scout and personnel guy and a general manager. And uh, he had Georgia, and, and he was just adamant that Gino was, was a hard guy to block, that he would be able to rush the uh, passer from an interior line position, which we did not have at the time. And uh, that we shouldn't worry that he wasn't the, the tallest guy or necessarily the biggest guy, but he was just going, he was strong and had balance and was powerful. And uh, then when you met Gino, he was the quietest guy. You couldn't get him to talk. I mean, Jay Hayes coached him for years and he said, I've, I've had like two conversations with the kid. <laughs> he's in the room every day. So, I mean, we, we talk football stuff. He said, he's just a quiet guy. But he was so intense, and when you saw his, uh, how powerful he was, and his uh, his balance uh, balance for those interior defensive linemen comes into play because they get double teamed a lot, they get combination blocked a lot, and and so they're getting pushed kind of on, in two directions, and a lot of and some of them get turned and they they fall or they go to the ground, and he just was so sturdy and his. The fact that he wasn't 6'5", and yet was so powerful was a real advantage for him because he had this built-in leverage that these taller offensive linemen, they just couldn't move him. You know, it was like a big uh, picture a, a, a really a boulder with a flat bottom sitting on the ground and you can't roll it and you can't push it. And that's kind of how he was. And, and that made such a difference for the linebackers in the run game. And then when he was singled up on a guard or a center, Uh, In the pass protection, if they didn't give that person help, gino would just push them back into the quarterback space to the advantage of Michael Johnson and Carlos Dunlap on the outside.
0: From 2009 to 2014, the Bengals had a run of six straight drafts that worked out really well. In 2015, the streak ended. Cedric Obwehi in round one, Jake Fisher in round two, P.J. Dawson was one of two selections that the Bengals made in round three that year. Obviously, none of those guys really worked out in the NFL. Was that a draft where you felt like you made mistakes or is that just one of those things that sooner or later you're bound to have a bad one? We
1: had had a number of good drafts in a row and we had a good football team. We were at a point where we did not know how long Witt was going to play. And uh, we felt like we were at a point where we had good depth on the team and we could bring in some guys who nece- did not necessarily have to play that first year, but would become the heir apparent. That was the plan. O'Boyehy, oh Paul Alexander, the line coach, uh, felt that he was one of the best prospects he had ever seen. And then, and then Cedric, in, the, in their bowl game that year, suffered a knee injury. We consulted with the, the, the physicians that saw him at the combine, and our own doctors examined him when we brought him to Cincinnati. And the consensus was this was, uh, while it was a knee injury, it was one that is dealt with all the time and that, that he should be fine. Uh, uh, Fisher was uh, from Oregon, uh, aggressive, pretty good athlete. Um, the thinking was that those two guys could become attackers. They just didn't. For whatever the reasons are, I left after uh, the 15 season, so I wasn't there for a lot of their early developments. So I can't speak intelligently about what happened to them, but clearly we got it wrong uh, because they didn't develop, and um, we went through the same process. We had done for the previous six drafts, and we simply missed. And uh, that's a shame. Uh, luckily, Witt continued to play and continues to play until just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so it wasn't like you didn't have a tackle you know, at that point uh, immediately. Uh, but yeah, we just missed, and, and that does happen.
0: How heated does it get in the draft room?
1: I think it depends on the personalities. Um, Mike would let you argue to a point, uh, but if he thought it became personal or, or non-productive in some way, he would put a quick end to it. Uh, but I think that you know, one of Mike's really good traits is that he's a very good listener and a very observant person. And he would be interested in the level of passion you displayed about your guy, as long as it was reasonable. He and Duke uh, both did a really good job of um, reminding everyone at the outset that uh, we want you to speak your mind. We want you to defend the players that who, who are in your area that you really like, but let us remember that everybody has a voice here and that our ultimate goal is to make the Cincinnati Bengals better. So that's what our decisions will be based upon. And, and, and Mike would say at the time, don't be upset if I don't go the way you want me to go. I hear what you're saying. I also have to hear what everybody else is saying and I have to have my own view. Uh, so I, you know, I would encourage you to speak up and uh, say your piece and then we'll make a decision. And when we'll walk out of here, it's everyone's decision. I don't want to, you know, one thing he would not tolerate is I don't want to hear somebody going down the hall into another person's office and say, can you believe what Jesus, we just screwed this up. Uh, He said, I don't want to hear that. We'll have make a decision as a group. And then it's our decision and everybody lives with it. So I thought Mike handled that kind of thing really well.
0: Are there any examples you can share of when a guy that the Bengals really wanted was taken one or two picks Before they were on the clock, and does that happen frequently? Is that something that happens almost every year?
1: I think uh, I can't think of an example immediately. Um, Sure, it happens, but as I as I laid out in the uh, when we started with the first round, I said if you're picking 16th, you have 16 names. You repeat that process over and over. So the draft is a three day endeavor. So when the draft is over on the first night. The scouts will stick around and you've taken those 32 players off of your board and now you have reordered it um, with the next whatever's in the second round, however many that is, 40 or something. Uh, you, You reorder it based upon what you have, how you've graded those guys. And then early the next morning, everybody comes back in and we say, okay, here's where we are. Do we want to make any adjustment to it? Why would you make an adjustment? You might make an adjustment based upon who you got in the first round. Uh, You know, if you took your quarterback in the first round, then these other quarterbacks that were in that next group of players come off. You're not going to take them. And so you're going to elevate some guys up. And you have to have a really good discussion at that point of uh, right, we're picking 16th again here in the second round. Here are the 16 guys numbered one through 16 that we want. You know who we really want? We want 13. If we could get 13, so you're watching it play out, and then that again is where the discussion comes in. All right, we've got Atlanta ahead of us and we're looking at a edge rusher. They've got, let's say they have two great edge rushers. They're not gonna draft an edge rusher, but this team behind us may be looking at the same thing we're looking at. Should we call Atlanta first, for example, and say, we'd like to move up to your spot because we can assure ourselves that we'll get our guy. So there's a little bit of play with it, you know, uh, at that point, based upon who you've already taken, for example.
0: One thing that's interested me over the years that I didn't realize is that what we see on TV is not live in the draft room. (laughs) You're several minutes ahead, correct?
1: Yes. Yeah. 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 They, um, you in the first round, you have 10 minutes and, uh, The TV programming, uh, they're working on a 10-minute schedule as well and when they plot out the broadcast. So they are allowing this person to talk about the players and this person, then there's a commercial break. And and so the teams, if you know who you're picking and if nobody is calling on the phone, and and normally you will wait um, unless you're just absolutely certain, we're taking this guy no matter what, as soon as it's your turn, you'll call New York and they'll hand in the card. If you are in a position where you say, well, we give five minutes, let's see if somebody calls and what they have, and you will have already discussed, uh, if we're picking 16 and we're, we're thinking we might move, what would we take in return? So you have all that in your mind and you have two people in the room that man the phones that uh, other teams can call in and say, hey, we be interested in moving. Um, so a lot is going on there. Uh, but no, but rarely does does a team take those full ten minutes. Yes, it's the, the pick is in, and, and then you wait uh, several minutes before you see it on television. Yeah,
0: it is a very highly rated TV show, so this stuff oh. uh, is important.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the draft kills NBA playoff games, uh, Major League Baseball games, MLS. I, I mean, it's it's really kind of crazy that to watch this, thing, but it has yes, it's a primetime showcase.
0: Yeah, but if I'm not mistaken, the combined rating of the first round of the NFL draft between the various networks that now carry it exceeds any game of the World Series, which is crazy to me being a lifelong baseball fan, but that same shows here. you the power of the NFL.
1: Yeah, that same year. I grew up with the big red machine as a, as a local guy, and I can't imagine that. The World Series was, geez, it was everything. You kept score, You kept your scorebook at home. yeah it's it's very true the NFL is a monster uh, in terms of television
0: all right a few more hard-hitting questions for my friend Greg (laughs) Seaman the former Bengal scout how much snacking is done in the war room and what's available
1: the amount of snacking at the beginning is is casual and the closer you get to your pick it's by the handful you have uh, you have somebody coming in just dumping uh, Chex Mix and candy (laughs) bars and uh, uh, in our in our draft room, licorice was very popular, either the stringy kind or the little chewable bites, um,
0: little longer and, lasting.
1: Yeah, sodas. Uh, yeah, just a tension reliever, I suppose. Uh, but. Yeah, a lot as it gets closer to it, and then if you if you really get the guy you want, you're really happy. Then there's celebratory snacking. You know, people <laughs> are you know, Can I get you another candy bar? There, you know, you know self congratulations for a few minutes, and then you start thinking about the next round. And oh God, is he going to be there? Or what are we going to do? Uh, that kind of thing. It one of the, one of the funny things that uh, it's not it's not funny at the time, but. Um, You have a player uh, again, let's say we're picking 16. You have a player ranked eight and he doesn't get picked eight or nine or 10 or 11 or 12. He's sliding and you're looking at each other and saying, okay, is this really good or is this really bad? Do people know something? We don't know. And you start, you, you might reach out to contacts that you have maybe somebody, maybe a writer that has covered that guy or, um, Somebody at the school who you have a good relationship with. Why is this guy sliding? Is there going to be an arrest report tomorrow that we don't know about? Uh, And that can be, that can be really agonizing because you don't, we don't want to be the sucker, so to speak, that takes this guy. And another part of you is saying, tag on it. We did our research on him. This guy's really good. These folks are just wrong. And if he slides to us, we're going to hit a home run. And uh, so that, Tension can show up unexpectedly sometimes, and you just have to work through it and, and stay true to what you believe, and then try like hell to find out if there's something you don't know.
0: Were you amazed by the remote draft a couple of years ago with Roger Goodell in his basement and you know Duke <laughs> Tobin with a live camera in his home and all of that? Right.
1: Yeah, I yeah, amazed is a good word. I mean, it just um, well, it, it like all of uh, everyone that's working from home during that period, it's just different i mean people are disassociated from one another physically and uh yeah i i didn't find it very appealing uh you as as much as they can uh, maybe be uh ill-mannered at times it's nice to have the, the fans uh in the draft and it, their reaction is important i think so it was a
0: little bizarre all You were an NFL assistant coach in Dallas and in Cleveland, where the coaching staffs are not in the war room, at least not all of the time. Should they be? Do the Bengals have this right?
1: I have um, a strong feeling that all the people that have worked to build the draft uh, should be available in the room. One is a reward for all that they have done. Uh, two to have their availability if there's a last minute uh, question and that would what that question would be is well unexpectedly guys we can have a choice here between these two players at the same position we have one rated above the other we think they're both really good is there anything that sways us between these two at this point maybe based upon somebody else we drafted already or whatever uh, the immediacy of that is good on the uh, but. To go the other on the other side of it, you can't have chaos, and and so you asked me early on about the 2004 draft, and I said, as you speak when spoken to, that does have to be the the way that the room works. Um, I think that if you if you were a team that uh, truly had some concerns about uh, leaks, and you just didn't feel good about your people in that mm-hmm. regard. Um, that would be part of it. Um, There is a complicating factor more these days than probably when I first started even, uh, and that's agents. Uh, Agents that represent both coaches and players, and um, they have their own relationship, and and you have to make sure you say, uh, and Mike Mike said this to the coaches, if I find out that you're leaking information from the draft board about where we are on one of your agents' players, then that's fireable. We can't do that. Um, so that would be a bit of an argument for having fewer have access to it. Um, but I, I felt I felt like when you lock most all the people out who have done all this work, it's a little insulting and a little uh, disappointing um for a young scout i think it's important that he is in the room if his aspirations are to run a personnel department or and ultimately be a general manager it is greatly to his benefit or her benefit because we have more and more uh, young ladies coming into scouting which is awesome um uh, it's to their benefit to be in the room and see how it works to see how it is when you've got three minutes left on the on the uh pick and suddenly the Dallas Cowboys call and they want to move to your spot and they're just sweetening the offer uh, you got to have a calm steady hand there uh, and how to handle that because it, you know, it's not it's not like the movie draft day where it happens all the time but it does happen and it happens in a, in a point where you have time constraints like uh, who was it several years ago the Minnesota Vikings missed their turn And somebody jumped ahead of them and took their spot. So I think that there's a benefit being in that room and seeing how that all works. So I would favor having the people that have done the work to be in the draft room, at least as observers, and available as a sounding board if there's some discussion that has to take place.
0: Were you working for the Browns when draft day came out?
1: I want to say, yeah, I was there starting in 16. So I think the movie came out around then and it was entertaining and, you know, I love the great message. You to know, stay true. To it. And you got the the general manager's got the uh, note to himself in his desk drawer, you know, to remind himself, stay true to what you believe and take mm-hmm. this guy. And, uh, and then the, it was a little overdone with the birthday party. You know, and they, they interviewed the kid. And you, Why didn't many of your teammates come to your birthday party? But uh but there is some, you know, that was dramatic, certainly. Uh, but that is the kind of, I think the point they were making is, is a good one. That's the kind of thing that you expect a good area scout to find out that, you know, he's in that school three or four times a year and he develops relationships where he can go down the hall and go into somebody's office unannounced and, and they have a friendly relationship and say, you know, what's going on with this kid? And we uh, find out. So it was entertaining. Yes.
0: We are about a week before the draft. What's going on right now? And is the work basically done?
1: Yes. Boards are set. Um, The process has always been, I assume it's the same. Obviously, I haven't been in that part of it for a few years. But the last week generally was uh, you would do a series of mock drafts yourself. And uh, so you might take, in our case, we would take all the coaches and scouts in the room and you would have a, <clears throat> one or two teams that you represented. You were their general manager for this uh, draft. And then we would spend a couple days doing drafts. And so I'm the New York Giants and I picked John Smith and you come down and uh, there's your spot. And uh, then Mike would make the pick or we would discuss it. And say, OK, yep, we're going to stay right where we were. Uh, and take that guy. On, a, on a, the next day, you might do it. And he would ask you to make different picks. And maybe the person you were left with was the 16th player on your 16-player list. And you're thinking that the 17th and 18th players are just about as good. And we can pick up a second-round pick. So we're, if that happens, we may call these guys, because we think they're looking for this same player. And maybe we can move back to get their second round pick, still get a guy we really like. Um, so you do that and you have that discussion of, uh, you try to have done your research teams that you think might like to move to your spot. And so then you have the discussion of, okay, uh, the Philadelphia Eagles as anticipated have called us about this 16th pick. What do we want in compensation? And uh, what what we learned in the last 10 years is that, um, general managers on a lot of teams place less value on future picks than they do on current picks. So you feed, you know you would say to them, okay, well here's what we want. Uh, maybe we want your starting right tackle and your uh, third round pick, or we'll we'll trade you first round picks. We want a second and a fourth, or we will trade you first round picks. We want a second and next year's first because they don't value it as much as they do this year. Sometimes it's a GM who's in the last year of his contract and he really doesn't care (laughs) about that future pick. He just wants this player to save his butt. Um, So you try to rehearse um, as much as you can, what's going to happen on draft day. So there aren't surprises. It's much like uh, putting on a play, for example, you rehearse it and rehearse it and rehearse it. And, and so you, uh, As uh, somebody once said, have a plan, execute the plan, plan for the unexpected. And that last week is the planning for the unexpected uh, part of that, I think.
0: Last thing, I think a lot of NFL fans, football fans in general, would say being inside the war room during the draft would be on their bucket list, would be one of the coolest things they could experience. Do you feel that way about the 13 years that you were in there with the Bengals?
1: Yes, for a personnel guy, that's the Super Bowl, and uh, it's uh, it's the culmination of so much. Uh, you 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 know the free agency period starts in early March, and uh, teams have different philosophies about free agency, but but free agency oftentimes will define a portion of your draft. Uh, so you want to get that part right, and then uh, if you've done that. And you've eliminated the uh, necessity of drafting for need because you didn't answer your problem with a veteran left guard or whatever it is. And now you've got to move this left guard way up your board out of need. You don't want to do that. So if you have a, a well-planned, well-designed draft, uh, it's a ball. You feel like you're in some control and that you're making your team better and that you're making your team better for a period of years. And so, yeah it it would it would be a well uh, it would be a well experienced bucket list event. Yes, it's very cool.
0: This has been extremely enjoyable and informative. I appreciate your time and your friendship. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. By the way, the draft day movie starring Kevin Costner as Sonny Weaver Jr., the fictitious GM of the Browns actually came out in 2014 while Greg was still working for the Bengals. And the famous note in Sonny's pocket read, Vontae Mack, no matter what. The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Ultimate Bengals, the free-to-play fantasy football game. This past season, Ultimate Bengals awarded a weekly winner during the course of the year with tickets, autographed merchandise, and money-can't-buy experiences all up for grabs. Find Ultimate Bengals in the App Store and Google Play. One of the best websites for information about the draft is profootballnetwork.com. They also have a fun and easy-to-use draft simulator. I did a three-round mock draft today and got Iowa center Tyler Linderbaum in round one, Colorado State tight end Trey McBride in round two, and Alabama cornerback Jalen Armour-Davis in round three. I think most Bengals fans would be happy with that, but I'm not so sure that Tony Pauline would agree. He's the senior draft analyst for ProFootballNetwork.com, and I caught up with Tony this week. Tony, the name that comes up most frequently on mock drafts to the Bengals is Iowa center Tyler Linderbaum. Let's start with your evaluation. How good is Tyler Linderbaum?
2: I think he's worth it. A late, late first round pick, early second round pick. I thought that he has been overrated throughout most of the process. There was talk here in New York about the Jets potentially taking him with one of their two top 10 picks. I thought that was ridiculous, but I think late first round may not be a bad place for him. He's a solid player. He's not a great player. He's a zone blocker. He's a guy that needs a running start into his blocks. He's not a big, strong mauler guy. Uh, I tell people, go back and watch the film of the Big Ten title game when he was basically handled by Chris Hinton. And then you you factor in that he's only ha- he has arms that are barely 31 inches long, and you wonder how he's going to handle those big Jordan Davis-type defensive tackles in the middle of the line. I think if you put him in his own blocking situation, you ask him to get out to the second level, you ask him to pull across the line of scrimmage and block a motion, he's going to do exceptionally well. He's a tough guy. He's not a very big or powerful guy. But still, I I think it fits a need, and I think the end of round one isn't a bad spot for Linderbaum.
0: Tony, it sounds like you are not as high on Linderbaum as
2: many. Well, I I mean, as far as centers are concerned, they're day two and day three guys. I think someone like Cameron Jerkins of Nebraska, who I think is ridiculously underrated, I have him as a third-round pick, but I think Cameron Juergens of Nebraska is better value at the end of round two for the Bengals than, say, Tyler Linderbaum is – the end of round one. And then you get guys like Zach Tom of Wake Forest, Dylan Parham of uh, Memphis. Those are all maybe late day two, early day three guys who I think have got a tremendous uh, tremendous amount of upside potential. Uh, But if you're looking at the... uh, at the Bengals, the end of round one, I think you got to consider cornerback. you got to see which cornerback uh, is still available, and they could potentially get a very good one there. I think your top three cornerbacks, Ahmad Gardner of Cincinnati, Derek Stingley of LSU, Trent McDuffie of Washington, will be off the board. But still, whether whether it's Roger McCreary of Auburn, Kerr Elam of Florida, Andrew Booth of Clemson, Kyler Gordon of Washington, although some people think that Gordon could be a late first-round choice, Those are all going to be considerations. Those are all good prospects, and I think those are all upgrades over what the Bengals uh, presently have at cornerback.
0: Of the four corners you just mentioned, McCreary, Elam, Gordon, and Booth, do you like two more than the others?
2: I love Roger McCreary of Auburn. The I mean, he's a tremendous shutdown cornerback. He gets it between the ears. He's got great ball skills. What he does is he does a tremendous job making plays with his back to the ball, almost knowing when the ball is in his air and getting his head back around to position himself uh, against the opponents to make plays on the ball. And, and I recommend anybody go back and watch that Alabama-Auburn game, which ended the regular season last year. I mean, he, he was dynamite against those two outstanding Alabama receivers. The problem with McCreary is he's under five foot. uh, He's under six foot tall. He's five foot 11 ran in the low four fives uh, at the combine and he's got short arms, which is going to downgrade him, but he's got outstanding cover skills. I also like care Elam a lot. He's a big physical guy. He's fast. He shows some solid ball skills. I think the issue with Elam is, Opponents purposely stayed away from him. They threw the ball in the opposite direction or the opposite side of the field of where he was. And sometimes that's a little bit difficult to completely scout a player like that. But I think Elon's got a tremendous amount of upside potential. I like him a lot as well. Tony Pauline is our guest. He is the chief draft analyst for
0: profootballnetwork.com. Last week, the Bengals reportedly hosted Houston defensive lineman Logan Hall on a pre-draft visit. What's your scouting report on
2: Logan Hall, and could you see him going as high as 31? No, I don't think he's a first-round pick. I think he's a day-two selection. He's, he's a very athletic guy who is just hitting a stride. He's a bit of a tweener. You know, is he a defensive end? Is he a defensive tackle? Is he a three-technique guy? I think he's got to get a little bit bigger. He's got to get a little bit stronger. I think he's got some upside. But I, I think that the Bengals can fit other positions of need with guys who w- w- would, will be able to bring more immediate impact uh, as rookies, as opposed to Hall, who I think is going to need a little bit of time. I like Hall, but I like Hall as a late second round pick uh, and a guy uh, that'll be a real good player two or three years down the road. Tony, offensive line is not the obvious
0: need that it was before free agency since the Bengals went out and signed three guys, but there's still one opening on paper for now. Left guard hasn't completely been determined. Now, Ted Karras could kick over and play guard if the Bengals wind up taking a center. But let's look at the guards because the names Zion Johnson and Kenyon Green have been mentioned often. Do you like those two guys, and do you see either or both lasting
2: as long as 31? I'd be surprised if both are available, Uh, maybe one of them. I think in Zion Johnson, you're getting a guy who could play guard. He also started at left tackle uh, for Boston College for a while. I don't think he's going to be a left tackle at the next level. But still, if your left tackle goes down, Zion Johnson successfully played that position at Boston College, so he could fill in in a pinch. Zion Johnson is also a guy that successfully took snaps at center uh, uh, during Senior Bowl practices. So you're getting a guy that can, you know, play two interior positions and may be able to play left tackle in, in, in a need if if your guy goes down. Kenyon Green is a big mauler guy. He's the type of guy that I think a Tyler Linderbaum you know, would have problems with if he was on the opposite side of the uh, ball. He's a nasty guy. He is a tough, slug it out, punch in your face type of uh, lineman. He doesn't have the versatility of Johnson, although Kenyon Green did play a little bit left tackle, wasn't as good as uh, Zion Johnson at left tackle, Uh, but but he's a bigger guy. He's more of a smash mouth uh, power gap lineman. I think in Johnson, you're getting a good, versatile offensive lineman that can play multiple positions. Uh, you can use them in a zone blocking system. I think in Kenyon Green, you're looking at, at more of a smash in the mouth power gap type of lineman.
0: The Bengals top three wide receivers are excellent and they all stayed healthy last year, but it's unlikely that that's going to happen in back to back seasons. How deep is the wide receiver crop in this draft and how, how far down would you have to go to get somebody who could contribute right away?
2: Yeah, you should be able to get good receivers in the fourth and fifth round in this draft. You know, if you're you're talking about a guy in the fourth round, Romeo Dubs of Nevada, who is Carson Strong's favorite receiver. Kyle Phillips, a smaller slot guy who does a great job running routes, could also double up as a return specialist. Bo Melton of Rutgers, a guy who I don't think was properly developed at Rutgers primarily because they had problems on the offensive line. Had a terrific senior bowl, work, uh, week of senior bowl practices, ran 4 3 4 at the combine. So you, you know he's got that sort of upside. Taquan Thornton of Baylor, the guy who ran 4 2 8 uh, during the combine. He's a taller, thin guy, 6 two and a half, 181 pounds. A lot of good developmental type of prospects that I think as rookies could contribute as number four receivers.
0: Tony, the Bengals' top two safeties, Jesse Bates and Von Bell could both be uh, in the final year of their deal. Jesse Bates was franchise tagged. Von Bell's got one year left on the contract he signed a couple of years ago. How about safety in the first few rounds? How is that crop?
2: I think what's going to happen with the safeties is if you want one of the top safeties, and I'm going to take Kyle Hamilton out of this equation for a variety of reasons, but if you want a top safety, you better draft them late in round one, or by the middle of round two, because I think they're going to be off the board late round two at round three. I mean, your top guys, uh, or, or the guys that are good safeties, ter- terrific free safeties that go sideline to sideline, excellent ball skills that could go late first round, early round two include Louis Sean of Georgia, Daxton Hill of Michigan, Jalen Petrie of Baylor, Jaquan Brisker of Penn State, Nick Cross of Maryland. You know, I, I I think except for maybe seeing in Dixon, Dixon, uh, Daxton Hill, I'm sorry, uh, all those other guys are more second round picks, but they won't be there when the Bengals are called to the clock late in round two. I mean, later on, you're talking about guys like Cordell Flott of LSU, who's a sort of a combo corner safety who's. Very good. Only had one really good season at uh, LSU, although he was good last year. A little bit tall, tall, thin guy. Dane Belton of Iowa, who's a fourth-round pick, more of a straight-line downhill safety. Uh, Ver- Ver- Verone McKinley of Oregon. Terrific player, but not a good athlete. Could not break four six five in the lead-up to the draft. So you're talking about day three guys that have got a lot of limitations in their game. Quinton Lake of UCLA is someone who I absolutely love. Terrific football player. Great instincts, great ball skills, but he barely broke four, six uh, in pro day workouts in the combine, which is going to be an issue at the next level.
0: Tony Pauline is our guest. His big board on ProFootballNetwork.com is amazing. I highly recommend checking it out. Uh, This is a Bengals podcast, but there's obviously a lot of interest in uh, UC Bearcat prospects since up to nine guys could be drafted this year. We know Sauce Gardner is going to go in the first round. Do you think Desmond
2: Ritter will as well? If it was up to me, I'd say no, because Desmond Ritter to me is a day two pick. But the information I'm getting back from teams is just about everybody has a first round grade on them. And, you know, one thing we've seen the past, what, 15 years in the NFL draft is that quarterbacks are always overdrafted. So I'd say right now there's a better than 50-50 chance that Desmond Ritter ends up in the first round. I have joked
0: that my nightmare is Desmond Ritter to the rival Pittsburgh Steelers. Could you see Pittsburgh taking Ritter at number 20?
2: I think they're leaning more towards Malik Willis of Liberty, whether he's there at 20 or whether they have to trade up to get him. I think that's been their game plan all along. I think there's an, uh, that's a possibility. Same thing with Matt Corral to the uh, Steelers at 20.
0: How have super seniors cha- uh, changed your draft evaluation this year?
2: Well, it hasn't tr- changed the draft evaluation. What it does is it m- means that there's more draftable players then there are draft slots and, and you know you go back to last year because so many seniors went back for that extra year of eligibility granted to them by the nc2a what you had was you had players that were usually seventh round type talent go in the fifth round you had players that usually would have been priority free agents end up being selected in a draft the opposite is going to happen this year there's going to be a ton a plethora of talent and day three so what's going to happen is guys that will usually be fourth or fifth round value could go sixth or seventh round just because of the numbers and guys that have draftable grades may end up not getting drafted uh, drafted at all so basically on my board there's only 255 players selected in the draft i have about 280 players with draftable grades and that is primarily because so many players went back for that second senior season that was granted to them by the NCAA.
0: And you've evaluated more than 1,400 guys, correct?
2: Correct, and, and this is you know, a, a couple of years process. This isn't done over the course of months. I mean, most of these guys, I have notes on for two and three years. That's why I like to look at the body of work. I can talk about a guy like Derek Stingley throughout his career. So yeah, the evaluations are done over the course of their college careers, Obviously more emphasis is put on the final year before they enter the draft, but you can't forget about the early seasons while they were on the college field.
0: Well, Tony, as I mentioned, your big board is awesome. Uh, The mock simulator on profootballnetwork.com is addictive. I love them both. And I really appreciate your time and your expertise today. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks for having me again. That's going to do it for this episode of the
0: Bengals booth podcast presented by ultimate Bengals. Download ultimate Bengals ahead of the 2022 season.